This is the Hope for the Hood podcast, brought to you by Prodigal Sons Incorporated. Hey, 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 welcome back. I'm Brian. We got Danny here. What's going on, peoples? And uh, today we have some great friends, the Mosses, John and Steph, with us. What's up, guys? Hi. Hey, hey, Brian. Hey, Danny. How's Glad it going? To be here. Good. Yeah. Good. Thanks for having us. Yep. It's good to good to see you guys. I wish the uh, the listeners could see you. You're very good looking people. Um, <laughs> You're too kind. But you know, uh, if they could see you, then they could see me. And relatively speaking, <laughs> that wouldn't be good for my my stock. Anyways, um, the Mosses are good friends of ours from church. Uh, they've also just had a lot of experience working in ministry in various contexts, particularly marginalized contexts, and. Um, I mean, that's just given them great perspective and, and we wanted to have them on to share their lessons and experiences here um, and unpack that for you guys. Yeah. So, yeah. And kind of just piggybacking off that a little bit. Um, I think your guys' knowledge and wisdom and experiences, whether it's personal, whether it's ministry work, whatever it's been, um, it, it touches on a lot of different issues, again, that do affect a lot of marginalized communities, obviously. And uh, some of those things we see prevalent in our context, specifically working in prodigal. And so we just thought it'd be good to have a conversation to kind of unpack that, just to see from another perspective, talking about things that do affect a smaller niche that we're involved with. And also, again, just helping people just learn more and more and have a better understanding of like these different little aspects that um, come into play when people are affected, you know, in their, in their lives and their experiences. And it's not like people just get up one day and say, Hey, I want to go do this and commit a crime. I want to go join a gang. There's so many different layers oh, there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. yeah. So again, that's why we just wanted to hear from you guys today, perspectives, experiences, and wisdom. So thanks for joining us again. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Maybe, uh, just kick it off, just share a little bit about, you know, who you are, what you guys do, um, church connection, all just high level. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll go first. My name is uh, John Moss. I'm originally from Michigan. Uh, I grew up um, in the city north of Detroit, Michigan. I moved to California about six months after marrying the lady on my right, my my beautiful wife. We uh, we actually met in um, our formative college years in, um, while serving with athletes in action, um, here in Los Angeles. And, um, yeah, that's uh, a little bit about me. My church affiliation is, uh, I guess, Cornerstone. I've gone to Cornerstone for 15 years now. Wow. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I was going to be like that six month, we moved here after six months of marriage because I was freezing. (laughs) (laughs) Too much. (laughs) Uh, This is Steph. Um, I grew up in Arizona and uh, hence why I was so cold in Michigan and had to move to LA. That was like my middle ground because I think it's cold here. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I can remember like 110 (laughs) degree weather and it wasn't humid. It was like that nice, super dry heat. I loved it. Um, I can only swim in ninety degree weather in ninety degree like water <laughs> you know, bath water pools out there. Um, yeah, so I, you said like where who are we? What do we do? I am a social worker by like degree and most of my kind of work experience. I now work for Cornerstone West LA and 
that is also where I go to church with my husband. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we've been there a long time and know you guys through Cornerstone awesome. and Prodigal. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, what, you know, we said in the intro that you guys have experience working in marginalized contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just share kind of what that was and yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start. I think for me, it really started, I didn't realize I, so I, I grew up in this neighborhood that people always called the junction and it was kind of known to be like trailer trash town. And I didn't know that until Mm. I moved to the suburbs. Mm. (laughs) And when I moved in the suburbs, uh, I realized, oh wait, the town I came from did not have, does not have the same things that this town has. Uh, Two sets of brand new books for every student at the Mm. old school. We had one set and you had to leave them in the classroom. Um, just like shiny new equipment every year, every season for every sport. Um, a lot of white people and um, a lot of like privilege and uh, just like a higher class of living. And I didn't recognize it until really I got in that context that I was even in anything that was like poor or, or deemed kind of marginalized by their like poverty so much or even their way of life. I mean, I grew up like riding motorbikes in the desert and like sneaking cigarettes in the desert. (laughs) Uh, We were just like a trashy town. And I, people really made me aware of that when I moved to the the suburbs, just how I, even how I talked, I changed, I had to like change how I talked. And so this marginalized kind of concept or um, the disparities between these, these contexts became evident to me kind of more in my childhood. Hmm. And it really drove me to kind of justice. I remember when the Rodney King beatings were on like TV and I remember people referring to them, those black people. And I just, there was something about that word that hmm. gr- like, like grained against my like heart or my spirit for the people on TV. And I, um, I remember grabbing a crayon, a black crayon and holding it against the TV and being like, they are not black because they're brown or, you know, I just, yeah. there was something about feeling like there was like an other and a this and a them or mm. us and them kind of, um, spirit. And I ended up, uh, I was the first in my family to go to college. And after college, I, um, I just, yeah, I pursued social work. Well, no, no, sorry. Rewind in college. I got, I, that's when I became a Christian and I got mm. involved with athletes in action and they had a summer project called the urban project. And it's hosted by um, Mike Sylvester, D. Sylvester, their family out here in L.A. So came to a summer project and got to live in a home on USC's campus for an entire month. It was like the real world, mm-hmm. but for <laughs> missions nice. context, kind of. And so it was there that we got to serve alongside um, community-based organizations that were already living, doing life in um, kind of marginalized contexts. And we got to just come alongside what they do and learn and apply kind of the Bible and Jesus's life to Mm. our hearts and to our living, um, and our service. And so Mm. I think from there, I was like, I want to do this for life. Like I did, this is just how I want to live my life. And, Mm. um, I didn't know if that was a career, a church, a city I was supposed to live in. Like what, how, how can I just be about this? Um, I I really felt like they were about the Christ I was reading about in the Bible. Mm. And Mm. so, um, yeah, I went to a couple urban projects. I don't know, like two summers of them. And then you, got guys, married. you guys met there? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Um, we, we met the summer before, but okay. we, yeah, we met the summer before. Well. Also at yeah, an athlete's think, in action camp, athlete's but it wasn't the urban camp. project camp that we met. Wow. It's got to think about this. So we met in 2003. Yeah, we don't need too many details. Okay. It's only a 45-minute podcast. <laughs> but John in, in is in a general, memory bank, if you don't know general, him. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, we met and we we didn't get to serve together at an urban project till two years later. Mm. Okay. Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I, I, you're right. You're right. Cause I, I saw you at Urban Project. You're like, I know. <laughs> but you're right. We served together the second year, probably your third, anyways. It but was my second year, your first. Yeah. And I think yeah. um, similarly, that was something that was aligned with John was I saw that he wanted this to be not just a project he dropped into, he went one time, feel good, did some great work one summer and like left. He really was like, no, I, this is like who I am and how I, how I want to live or just be with people. And not so much as his profession or anything, but it was like, we're with me. I went into social work. I, I ended up getting a master's at USC and um, pursuing social work and working in that for, I don't know, 10, 12 years and before the church. And so, um, yeah, that, I think that urban, urban project is where I really saw that our values were aligned in that and that they were rooted, not just um, in who we were and like the Bible, but like how we wanted to live. It's, kind of the catalyst even for us being open to moving to LA. Like mm. we got mm. married, I moved in with him to, to Michigan and winter hit. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, sorry. Win, do you want to add anything? In October. <laughs> no, no. I think you, uh, elaborated That's like a on that really, very well. It was a very long answer. No, for, no, super, yeah, that's guys. super but, helpful. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, yeah, and I think, though, but I think it was a great answer. And I think the only thing I would say, I guess from my side is, you know, I, I tried to reflect and think back and it's, you know, I remember in my family, my father, he really, so a lot of times we think of marginalized, whether they're homeless or different people. For my dad, the people he saw as marginalized were elderly. Mm. And he mm. had a really yeah. big heart because his parents, he wasn't living in the same town as his parents, right? We were living 800 miles away. So my dad would take his weekends and he would do Meals on Wheels, like mm. all the time. And he would take us with him. We we would pack up everything and we would drive. We'd drop him off to elderly people in the Detroit area. Mm. And um, so that, that, I think, experiencing that with my father as a young, uh, as a youngster and as a young kid, I, I as I grew up, I always kind of had in my peripherals like certain people that are ostracized or forgotten. Mm. You yeah. know? Um, I think when I started... Um, Participating in the athletes in action camps was very interesting to see how um, the marriage could be made between the talents and um, gifts God had given me uh, athletically and the platform that gives you to share God's love mm -hmm. with people. Um, because, and I know this is, uh, a lot of people have said this, you know, like there's, uh, I think I got this one from Mike Sylvester, actually, there's art like art's a universal language and sport is, mm. is like a universal language. No matter where you go, you drop a soccer ball, you know, like you can, you can go all over the world, you drop a soccer ball, some kids are going to know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and recognizing that, um, you know, like you've been giving, given these talents to, and how you want to use those talents was one thing that really was impressed on me during that time. I think when I was meeting Steph and, and we were out here, um, serving in, in LA and it was, um, I just remember it being a very uh, eye-opening experience mm -hmm. yeah. for me. So, mm -hmm. for just, I have a quick context <clears throat> question in terms of like when you guys were in here in LA serving. Like, what Where? part of LA were you guys serving at? Like, what was it? You can add the Urban Project stuff, and then I'll I'm gonna add. Okay, uh, so uh, Urban Project. Me personally, I was in Skid Row, um, in downtown, and. Um, 
44th and Western, which is like uh, Faith in Christ Ministries. It's um, just south of SC. Yeah. South, yeah, like the northern part of South Central, north, or kind north, of north yeah. mid part of South Central. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That summer, I was um, I was at Nickerson Gardens, uh, which, which is a housing project, right? <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah. If people, yeah, I guess if like listeners the, don't know, it's the like largest housing project <laughs> West in of LA Mrs. now. I think yeah, it's West, West of Mississippi. Yeah, West of Mississippi yeah. 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 It used to be the largest. Lisa Village in yeah. Boyle Heights, but now it's Nickerson Gardens. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at Nickerson, and I was at Skid Row, uh, yeah. and then in my social work. Um, career, I guess you would call it. Uh, I was, I worked in Compton. So I worked with a um, organization called Shields for Families are Incredible and uh, got worked with families, really just working a whole family services, working with families that are uh, um, struggling with substance use. And they've oftentimes had their children removed from them because of their substance use or there's um, criminal, you know, just history maybe on their, their records and trying to get kids back because of that. And so they're, they're a comprehensive program, program, and they have all these other services as well um, to help people get jobs, get back on their feet, get their families back together. Um, and so working kind of more of a macro programmatic level, got to work with the um, executive director there. She's just just so innovative and um, mm-hmm. really re- deeply rooted in the Compton area. And so that was most of my experience. And then I went on to work for like a shelter for women in be- the Venice area, women that are oh, homeless yeah. and pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I worked with that population for a while and in that context of L.A. And yeah. then really, have, yeah, yeah, it's about the last. And Ven- Venice, <laughs> we, can do a, we can do a whole <laughs> podcast on the Venice area because and other parts of L.A. that are like it because <clears throat> it's what people see now is <clears throat> the nice buttoned up, cleaned up version of Venice. And there are so many issues in that area. <clears throat> um that people just don't know about. But mm-hmm. Anyway, that's neither yeah. here nor there. But that's, I mean, as you said, yeah. that made me think like, yeah. There's... It was so different than Compton. It was like yeah. two, and so, I know, so same city, it's LA, but really like, yeah, the Venice vibe was completely different than Compton. And even some of the issues they're facing, although you could maybe clump them as like marginalized areas mm-hmm. or marginalized people groups or what they're experiencing, it, it still felt different. And some of the struggles were yeah. just look, looked very different in yeah. those parts of town. So, yeah. So I, I think it'd be interesting to hear you guys unpack um, from the the variety of contexts you have ministered in and worked in. Like, what are some of those issues that have faced the people you've you've been connected with? <laughs> I don't know. I just talked. <laughs> like, you oh, want to yeah, go first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure. Um, I mean, we can we can tag team too. But I think uh, specifically, there are a few few things that really. Uh, stand out to me you talk about issues really i think um i definitely in one of my experiences um homelessness or i should say houselessness and um hungry uh like Hmm. kids being hungry i i remember you know what that changes as far as what their focus is Mm -hmm. You know, um, and being sensitive to that, like when kids get out of an out of a out of school and they get to a program, if they don't know where their meal is coming that night, they have a totally different focus than mm. someone who knows that they're going to have a food mm. that night and knows how things are going to go on. Like they they're they're really concerned about 
all right, what are, what are we serving tonight? What are you guys serving for food? What is, mm-hmm. What's going on? Like, they don't want to talk about the sport I play or anything else. They're like, yeah. you know, their, their perspective's different. Um, wow. One other um, thought that came to mind when, I, when I'm thinking about this is um, the idea of, well, I'm, this is kind of, I think it just like, went over there somewhere. I'm trying to get it back. I'll, uh, I'll chime in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, access. I think access yeah. is, I, I mean, you just think about how in, there are particular parts of town where you have access to healthy food, um, quality food. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you can do a whole Google search and documentaries on like food deserts and things like that. I mean, just even the mere access to quality food, uh, grocery stores, Places to, I remember on Skid Row, there was, there was nowhere for people on Skid Row to go and, um, like for recreation. So like you think of community, Hmm. you know, when you're in your neighborhood, there's a, there's a movie theater, there's a park, there's things to do in your community that people get outside and they spend time together. And when there's nothing to do, people find things to do to that will, right, like be fun. And, and oftentimes if there's nothing to do, it might be like, well, we're going to bond over like drugs and alcohol. And like, Mm -hmm. that's how we're going to hang out. Well, when there's no places to go and create memories and do things with people in your community, and so you can then create kind of a culture of community, you don't have access to those things. At Skid Row, they started a um, they had started a karaoke night hmm. because they were like, "There's nothing to do here other than you know sleep in tents and and kind of do drugs and alcohol." So they were trying to find this. Po- how do we build a positive culture here? Let's open up this church. We'll do a, a karaoke night. They served. I mean leftover pizza from some pizza place. It was like cold pizza and coffee, <laughs> but oh. people would come and you had to be sober to, um, to perform. Uh, and so it would really motivate people if they wanted to perform, they kind of, they'd show up and, you know, they might be sober for a night, but Hey, that's a night. And they're really connecting with people and they're getting to show their talents. That's and, cool. and so that kind of even access to opportunity access. And we, mm. I mean, you could go all over access to jobs and not just a job, like a um, I'm blinking on the a livable wage job, a job that actually can pay your bills and move you forward and not usually it's pairing together three, four, five different jobs together. And so, you know, I I remember working in schools and this is one of the issues, right? People would um, the school system would be so judgmental of families that weren't involved. And it's Mm. like, well, they're working three, four jobs just to put together a one, like enough of an income to pay your bills. And so the, the parents couldn't be involved because literally they're from sunup to sundown, they're working just to, you know, for basic bare minimum. And so when you're saying, oh, there's no parent involvement and the parent didn't show up to things, same with child welfare, you're, you know, the access for parents to be able to get on transportation to go to their meetings with their caseworkers. And they say, oh, well, you weren't showing up. And it's like, well, I work a full-time job hmm. and I had to get on the bus and I didn't either have bus fare or the bus was late. And so, yeah, a lot of like access issues and that when when you have transportation or you have a steady job or you have um, an education that is a quality or you even just have an outlet or, so that builds community, that, the, that access to those things does bring up your quality of life. And uh, we see that in every other community. In the community I live in, we we have more of that than in in other communities. And yeah, I thought I saw that as a big issue. Yeah, very well said. I think access really encompasses what I was going to say as well. And I think a lot of times, um, the the other one other thing I always noticed, at least um, in my upbringing, is when 
incarceration, like if someone is incarcerated and and if a group of people are incarcerated, a lot of times you would have uh, you would have these these elderly 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 people that the the people that normally you know would be checking in on them aren't around. Like this mm. whole demographic has been removed, mm. right? And and that's where like my my with my dad a lot of the times he would go around we you talk to these other people and I said, Well, my you know, maybe my son's incarcerated, my daughter is, you know, out of state and it's just me here. And, mm. you know, and I don't have this uh that support group. So um those things kind of impact that that group mm. and it, it almost kind of pushes them even further to the edge because they yeah. don't have that uh, yeah. su- support structure there. So yeah. Th- that's a, that's a very interesting point you bring up and I'm just going to lie. I mean, there's no follow up question with this. It's just like, I think when we think about incarceration and we see how that affects first a lot of black and Brown individuals here in LA, I think nationwide, it's definitely like more black. You just see how incarceration and lockup has effects. Mm. And you talk about, we talked a lot about like, just on the individual themselves, it's harder for them to get jobs. They're serving longer sentences. All the all these different mm-hmm. things, right? And then we secondly, it's like you see, like oh well, you see how it affects the family structure. You see how it affects the kids. You see how it affects the the spouse or the girlfriend, whoever. Like you see how now the family is affected by it. But I've never ever thought about how it affects like the yeah. grandparent. Yeah. Like you know, like I look at my family and like oh like. We have my grandma, but we have like a bunch of our family that's able to thankfully like tend to her and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I would never think like, oh, yeah, well, what if like my parents or my uncles, none of us were around? Like, mm-hmm. th- yeah, like that's just a fascinating thought that I never think about how incarceration can even affect that yeah. side of, of the family. So yeah. thanks for bringing that up and sharing those things, guys. Go ahead. Well, I would add one other thing. Mm-hmm. So I also see a sensitivity to trauma. Not a, sorry, not um, a, not a sensitivity. Insensitivity or um, trauma looks different. Let me just mm-hmm. word it that way. Trauma looks different um, in communities. In my particular like work, I am. I'm only going to speak from that context. I'm not speaking for every person, but uh, there's a lot of research around. Um, <laughs> so trauma-based models, like in social work and in um, counseling and in mental health care, a lot of times they're developed and they're tested on um, oftentimes white people and um, a demographic that is very different than who they're intended to deliver this modality to. And so we have a lot of, in, in South LA, there was a lot of organizations that would come in and be like, we have this great new model that's going to help. It's mm. trauma-informed, trauma-based care. Um, and they'd come in and they do all, they had had all this research behind them and they would deliver these programs or these with kids or families and it wouldn't work. It wasn't giving the same numbers and they just didn't, it was really kind of throwing them off and they didn't understand why. And, and when we got to the root of it, it really was like, well, trauma was all around, um, in, Mm -hmm. in oftentimes marginalized communities. It was, it wasn't something you experienced once or twice in your life, um, at one big event, you remember that one time that one person was shot or that one time you mm. heard helicopters that sounded like you were in a war zone. It's like you hear it all the time. And so you become to, you, you begin to, I don't want to use the word numb because it doesn't mean that it's not impacting people and, and how they function. And, and, but it was really, it was showing that like, well, when you test, when one person goes through trauma one time in their life, the, the, how they respond to it 
did seem like it was crippling their entire life, right? They needed a lot of wraparound resources and people and community. But here, when they were trying to uh, bring in programs for <laughs> that were trauma-informed and trauma-based, which is which are all necessary and needed, they just needed to look a little different because um, people just were living in trauma. Mm-hmm. It was like you're... It's just kind of it's like swimming in. Yes, it's the like water more in the air. Trauma. You're like, yeah, the, it's like you're in it in yeah under the it's water. It's just mm-hmm. all around. And I think people that don't live in places or in contexts like that, what just don't understand. I think how you live with that and how that how your body begins to take on that those stressors and things. And mm. I think it looks a little bit different than um, maybe what most people think of trauma or how they respond to trauma. When maybe just like one traumatic event happens in your life, mm, yeah, that's something we talk about a lot with prodigal and determine the aspects of trauma that affect um, a lot of those who get caught up in the streets. Um, so as you guys kind of shared right there, right from this like sort of like this bird's eye view or this general perspective of like these are some of the issues that we noticed that were affecting the communities that we worked with. I don't know if you guys can put yourselves in the position or the shoes of the people in the community somewhat and just like, what was the perspectives like for them that were in the community? You guys talked about the issues, but like, how did they perceive, I guess, honestly, I mean, this would be very broad, but just life in general, like, mm-hmm. or what were the experiences that kind of helped shape a perspective? I think that question really piggybacks off of kind of what Steph was talking about and you were talking about, Danny, in terms of trauma. And I think if you... And I think I don't think we a lot of times give it that lens. Um, I think their perspective is that life is a win or lose type mm. scenario, mm. right? Yeah. And I, I and from that mm. perspective, like you got to think living in that you're trying to look, you're trying to think, how can I win, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And, um. I'm not saying whether it's in in my my perspective I think it's not whether it's right or wrong but uh, like I like I brought up earlier if I'm if I don't know where my meal is coming tonight mm-hmm. you know that's but I know I'm going to be hungry that becomes my focus and I want to win like I need mm. I need one win here mm. right yeah and I need one win here yeah and I think uh these are things that a lot of us can sometimes take for granted. Mm. And, but I think in there, uh, in some of the communities, you know, at least the communities I've been involved in, I think understanding that kind of dynamic, like what's important to me is not important, you know, yeah. like has, mm, has yeah. no, has yes. no bearing because I'm not living in that yeah. scenario. Right. And, yeah. and I think that's, what's important about, and I, I think I learned a lot of this from my wife, understanding and I, and of course, um, I, I learned this from Steph, but the, you know, price represents this very well, like understanding where the people are, like meeting the people where they're at. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I, mine was kind of more along, I had a couple points on this one, um, shorter, but just, so one is a shared experience of distrust. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people and programs that swoop in, mm-hmm. drop in. They got like new funding this year or the, mm-hmm. the government funds this special thing this year or they have some new idea and they so they swoop into a community. We're going to fix it. We're going to bring this new thing 
and you guys will be better. We're going to heal you, help you, whatever. And either the funding runs out and they're gone um, or they get tired and they're gone. Mm -hmm. They don't understand why their methods aren't working. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so they're gone. And so I think I've recognized or what I've, I've seen and heard is that people particularly seeing kind of white organizations come in. Um, I'm just speaking from that, that, that that's what I've seen and heard is, is kind of these organizations that are, will be predominantly white that will kind of flood in and be like, we're going to, we're going to like fix you. And like, we have the answers for you, but yet none of the not asking anyone in the community what, what they needed and what they wanted mm-hmm. and what help they want. There's an example. Um, one time uh, this professor, they went in and they had gotten funding to renovate this playground and so they went and they built brand new basketball courts and they were so proud of themselves and they would drive by week after week to kind of check on the basketball courts and like nobody was out there like come mm-hmm. on and it totally stereotyped the neighborhood they're like come on this is like south la like they should should be playing basketball they should be mm-hmm. grateful this brand new court right so finally somebody was like why don't we just go ask them why is nobody using these are they broke or what's what's going on mm-hmm. and they were it was during the era when serena and venus williams were like mm-hmm. just you know, killing it. Like, it. Well, like they're very new to the tennis scene. And yeah. like this idea of these like black girls from Compton playing tennis, everybody wanted to be them and they mm-hmm. wanted tennis courts, but nobody, mm-hmm. and they literally told the people that came and made them, well, you never asked us. Mm-hmm. If you asked us, we would have told you we wanted tennis courts, but you just came in and built a business, a basketball court. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of, I use that example as like, nobody's, <laughs> Yeah, just this level of either distrust, I'm distrusting your intentions, or I can't trust that you're going to stay. Mm-hmm. You're not going to stay with me through the hard stuff. You're going to stay as long as like you're getting your stuff done. But as soon as the the hard stuff happens, um, whether it's shooting, violence, drugs, uh, I get locked up again. I, I'm mad at you for something. Like as soon as there's not this perfect, that kind of you're the savior in the scenario. Um, and you and you run. I th- I think people just are tired of these empty promises. Mm-hmm. And I think Christ, obviously, we know in in the Bible, like provides a lasting, trustworthy promise. Um, and but the people bringing that message are not always as lasting and mm-hmm. as trustworthy and as unconditionally loving as Christ is. Yeah. Um, and so it, it can be hard that this message you think is going to come and like save people is just mm. feels kind of empty when they, um, yeah. So that was one. I think the only other one I thought of um, was common perspective, shared experiences. So like dr- we think of sometimes, I think society looks at like marginalized communities and sees like rampant drug use, right? And they're like thinking or ses- drug sales. And it's like, you're just ruining your own community. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of the stereotype I think that is shared. And I remember one time we were helping somebody and we um, got him connected to a lawyer and and the lawyer was defending his case and it was about um, it was about him selling drugs and the lawyer eventually over time as he began to know this man and know his family know his community it reminded me of what you said John the win and lose thing. He began to see his client as he wasn't some bad guy out there like trying to ruin his community he wasn't out there like yes like loving that people were like hooked on drugs and he just like wants to feed the community drugs right he had been in jail before he could not get a job why because every time he fills Mm -hmm. out a job application he has to check the box that says he has a history he served his time he's done serving his time but we right we as a society and all of our policies and our systems for getting jobs remind people that oh you had a past even though you've served your time and you're done 
you checked a box and so I can't hire you again. And so he mm. had no other form to get income other than he couldn't make money legally. And so he, his only other option, right, his only other access to a, a livable wage is by selling drugs. And what did he want to sell drugs for? It was his kid's birthday. Mm. Like any of us can relate with that. Like I feel so guilty if I can't give my kid what they want on their birthday. My kid wanted mm. this year a jumper. And I was like, how can I get Josie a jumper this year for her birthday? <laughs> and and I think if you can see them as people and realize like they have the same desires and the same wants and like they just want to like throw a birthday party for their kids so they feel like a good dad because they've been gone for 10 years or five years or locked up mm -hmm. for a year or whatever that is. And so if if the only access you have to a livable wage is selling drugs, you're gonna you're gonna take your chance and sell drugs. Well, he got picked up that time, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was really neat for me to see like this this lawyer kind of get it and be like, oh, this, I'm defending something different here. And like he, he kind of adjusted, but I feel like I wanted to use that example to explain. It's a shared experience of when you see people maybe going about things in not so, not such legal ways or kind of cutting corners or it's a win or lose game because that's mm. the way we've set up our society. And that's mm. the way a lot of the yes. systems are set up that yeah. they have to operate in. And so yeah. you've, you've left them with no other choice, but yeah. kind of, to kind of make these moves because that's really the only access they have. Yeah, that that win or lose thing. I think another way I've kind of usually heard a phrase too is we're just trying to survive. Yeah. You know, it's just, we're just trying to, um, and I think unfortunately in those specific contexts and going to your specific example here too, Steph, and even as you're talking about like John too about the kids who are hungry, like there's this like train of thought of like, I need to try to survive to eat. So I got to do what I got to do. And then there's this aspect of like, well, now I also got people that I care about. Mm -hmm. I got to take care of them. So mm -hmm. I got to do what I got to do. And so, but under the the whole umbrella of it being in a urban context in the inner city, in a black and brown community, in a rougher area, it's all villainized. And it's all villainized usually right there. Um, I remember I saw an interview with a gay member. It was on, I think some news station did it and they... Was, I don't think the news reporter was trying to like villainize the the interviewee, but he's like, "Well, you know, why do you sell drugs?" And he was just like, "Well, if I don't, somebody else is going to do it." You know, like mm. if I yeah, if I don't, someone else is going to do it. And I think it was just kind of like it's almost like the the perspective. Like this is just my option. This is all I have. But yet, if I can't make money this way, like somebody else, then you guys aren't going to go interview. You're going to make it themselves. Too, you know, they're gonna make mm -hmm. their money off of this. Except you're just asking us, why are we doing this? I actually want to step. You kind of talked about on the distrust side of things and like this coming in to save perspective in a sense. Just generally speaking, um, I'm curious. And when you guys look at all these things that affect the communities, that affect a lot of marginalized, and it's not like the gospel is completely foreign. I think it's another thing with the gospel. We we treat the inner city mm -hmm. with church planning and stuff like. Oh my gosh! Like they need it. Like look how they're living. They need it's like it. it's, it's like, the ten forty window. Yeah, like exactly. no one's yeah. ever heard. Exactly. Yeah. It's like wait a minute. There's churches on like exactly. every corner. Yeah. There's so many huh. churches there. Um, it's just like, you know, people just have that perspective. And but I am kind of curious though. How how would you say the gospel or the good news? How is the gospel like good news for those who are marginalized in that context? When I when I think about that, Danny and Brian, it's like. Why is the gospel good news for me? Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's like, 
I need that. And I need to be reminded of that daily. Mm -hmm. I think we all do. Mm -hmm. That there is a God that loves us that much. And I think that can be a, a difficult message to hear if you're living in trauma. Mm. And, you know, you may, you may wonder why. Um, I think that's why, I think that's why it's got to be more than, I shouldn't say more, you know, that's why I think that relationship has to be more than just here's the gospel. Between the, yeah, between, between the yeah, minister and between the, the minister and the marginalized. marginalized yeah. yeah. It's not like, hey, here's this message, you know, figure it out on your own. <laughs> yeah. I think and that's why I really applaud uh organizations that and, and like even pr prodigal like organizations that are willing to develop relationships hmm. and witness to people why the gospel is important to them. Mm. and why I, it's so important with me that I want to share it with you. Mm. Um, so I think that's the, when, when I think about that, like why is it important to them? It's like, man, it's, it's everything. Yeah. If it's hard, and, and I understand in different situations it can be hard to see. Yeah. You know, but gospel's bigger than that god's yeah. bigger than that and there's nothing uh of all the other things that you may or that a, that a person can give you like this is this is what's going to really save you yeah because we all need to be saved yeah so that's yeah. why to me and and that's why it's important now the what that looks like um and what people might expect, I think, the, the, you know, because there's, you know, there's things like the prosperity gospel, different yeah. things go out there where it's like, oh, well, if you do this, you know, your life's going to change. And it's yeah. like, well. You can I, win. You can win. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, but, you know, the, the, the gospel says God is already, won. you know, Christ yeah. is one. Yes. Right. Amen. And how do I live? in light of that. Yeah. Like what, what, what yokes, if you will, you know, what burdens are off my shoulders. And I, and I think the the church has, has a responsibility to model that yeah. mm -hmm. in our, in our communities and mm. with those that are around us. Yeah. Um, especially in, in these situations. And yeah. Yeah. Steph, you're gonna. I was just gonna say real quick, John. That was really deep. Um, I want to clarify for our listeners my questioning with that too. We're not at all saying and asking the question of like, oh, traumatized communities need the gospel more. Like, isn't this so much good news for mm -hmm. for you guys compared to like those who aren't? In, like, like there's something a little bit more worse about them that they need this gospel mm -hmm. message. Like, so just for our listeners out there, like, there's no, yeah. there's no intention behind that because I think is I just think people in their minds mm -hmm. always start separating. Like that's what we just like the prodigal son's brother. Like he separates himself from the younger brother. Like I didn't live like that. So 
you know, why you, so it's just trying yeah. to, so yeah, you, yeah. you didn't mean that yeah. in your question, but that is how people view yeah. marginalized communities yeah. and, and the person, right? Yeah. And so, and as, and then the yeah. way John explained it, it's perfect. Like the way that we're saying the gospel is good news for these traumas and these difficulties and just the fact that we all are sinners who need a savior, like that's true for the communities we're talking about today and then also just for those who, yeah. Yeah, it's, so, it's, yeah. yeah, it's just as true for, yes. you know, South yes. LA as it is for anywhere Brentwood. else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Brentwood, exactly. Yeah. Like it's not yeah. a distinction and I and I think, yeah, I, I think we do a disservice when we try to make that distinction, but go, yeah. go ahead, Steph. You're Sorry, Steph. Oh no, I just wanted to <laughs> think of that thought. You actually just said, I love that, uh, that dichotomy. You said it's just as true in South LA as it is in Brentwood. And there is a, there is a, um, a statue uh, in kind of the Big Banks district downtown where there's a guy, um, he has his head kind of in the wall of the building. And it says something like anything to get ahead. Mm. And we, th- it's acceptable when people mm. in like the white collar industry, the finance district, do anything to get ahead, right? Mm. You think of all these big businesses that tax loopholes or um, how they how they price gouge things and anything to get ahead right to to be that multimillionaire to get to get the Brentwood house to get whatever and all of those ways are acceptable but if it's 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 a black guy selling slinging some like crack to like pay for his kids you know yeah, um, birthday. Mm-hmm. kids birthday he's also doing something anything to get ahead and I think that's that mm-hmm. that's that win or lose context that he's talking about is like it's so hard, I think, to when you don't have anything to feel like this gospel feels like just empty words. Like it's not, it's not going to help. I'm like going to cry. It's not going to help the feed my family tonight. Yeah. And I think, mm. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. So it is a good gospel. The gospel is good and it's mm-hmm. a good message and it's, it is timeless and it, is relevant and it and it is eternally life saving. Yes. But in the moment, the reason why it feels so empty, I think, is because sometimes the way people bring it is like, I want you to hear this good news because yes, you need it more than me is mm-hmm. what you were hoping that your question didn't sound like. But that yeah. is mm-hmm. how the church often comes into when you swoop in outside. You're an outsider going in. You can come in and kind of say. It's be and people can feel that when you talk about like the question before about like the shared experience and the shared and um, what's like a common feeling or like understanding is yeah like and I know I, guys I'm I keep throwing white people under the bus just in case you don't know I'm white <laughs> like, I'm, all, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm just speaking from my own experience and what I've seen yes. but like oftentimes it's kind of a feeling of like when you see this kind of like white Christian group come in or a white Christian person or white Christian church if there's this feel this shared feeling of like you're coming to change me. Like you actually just want to change like me, the person you don't actually like me. You don't like what I'm about. You don't like what I look like, whether it's my clothes, my tattoos, my community, the way I talk, Mm. the way I try to go about getting money for my family, the way I parent. And it can feel like this gospel you're bringing me isn't this good news. It's a, let me tell you this so you can change and kind of become maybe whitewashed is like a term that people could resonate with. And it doesn't actually feel like people are getting to that they that they have this shared like 
or that they're bringing you a God that like wants to change and transform your heart for eternity. Mm. It's like, it feels, there's just something, it feels a little different. And I think part of that is when you're coming with that without any relationship, now God can do anything. He uses, I mean, there's some incredible evangelizers out there that can just like, yeah. In one shot, it's done. But mm-hmm. but I really think that the, the the history of distrust and the lack of relationship in communities when, as you're talking about, like churches coming in or bringing in the, the good news, it's there, right? But like, how do we live it out, flesh it out and make it like transformative in, in people's hearts so then it's transformative. It has to be more than about just behavior change or like wanting people to like dress tidier, or, like with a tie and a colored shirt instead of like you know like a baggy shirt or something yeah yeah, yeah. um hmm. uh, so so there's a lot of like thought behind like bringing the gospel but also in a way that like you also meet people where they're at like through meeting some of their basic needs we don't you know share a meal together like in, invite kids to your kid's birthday party too and like meeting some basic life needs of like food shelter you will sometimes i think need to meet people's basic needs in order to them to even hear, that's what you're talking about, to even be able to hear the good news. Sometimes you got to like be able to be in relationship and in context and like yeah. meet basic needs. Um, yeah. The other thing I, I wanted to know is that when you said, um, why is it good news? Right. It, it solves so many of the problems. The Bible already solves so many of the problems that we as humans are scurrying around trying to solve. So things like, a lot of times like the violence in communities is because right it's you're you're carrying out justice this is in unjust that we are living in such poverty mm. so i'm going to go and take what's mine so i can feed my family or my community right it's unjust that we don't even have access to food or like i don't have the money to like get those things it's unjust that you shot my brother and like so now i'm going to go and carry out justice yeah. and like but we have we got we serve a just god and i think there's like so much biblical mm. context and biblical truth that is that is so applicable to marginalized communities and applicable to even the context of like prodigal of saying like, no, we actually serve a just God and he will carry out his, you know, his Mm -hmm. justice and his righteousness. And like, it's just, and when you can see the Bible through those lenses and the context, you're like, wow, I'm here thinking I have to carry it out. But when you know, he's got your back. Right. Mm And can, I think, yeah, that that kind of as you begin to unpack the Bible and who God is and in relation to these contexts, it's like the good news um, carries some like weight or some, some, it feels relatable. It doesn't feel like the white man's religion, right? Yeah. It feels like, oh, wait, this, this Jesus, like he's, yeah. he knows me. I'm like, he, hmm. he's, he, yeah, it doesn't yeah. feel so distant. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about just the James one passage we were talking about earlier this week um, in our study and uh, the whole be slow to speak, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Um, and just even in the context, I feel like when I think in, in Christendom, Christendom, mm-hmm. like there is this aspect where we, we know we need to go share the gospel, share the gospel. And that's, mm-hmm. we have to, we need to. Um, but I feel a lot of times what comes with that is like, we just want to be the ones who are speaking and not listening, like listening to where someone's at. So when they're going through all these layers of trauma, all these experiences, all these difficulties, and there's this like these for them just blocks and barriers. Like obviously we only know God, we know God can only change hearts, but like I think when we look at all these these things that um uh you know 
with the gospel, we need to come with listening ears as well, not just we're supposed to proclaim it, but we also need to be listening and hearing where they're at and seeing how the gospel ties touches down even to, to certain specifics. For Amen. So. I had a mentor in college, and he always he had a notebook, and I don't know where the quote's from, but it always said, I'm just a beggar trying to show another beggar where there's bread. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and he always talked about it, gave him the perspective of, I'm a beggar too. <laughs> right. And, and, and we are all in need of this. There's so much you guys have shared that is just immensely helpful for people. As we kind of near a close here, um, what are some just nuggets of encouragement or wisdom you would share for people who are looking to engage more um, with those in marginalized contexts? Maybe it's a church who's like, oh, we want a church plant in the area. Maybe it's a person who's just like, you know, whoever kind of comes to mind, what would you encourage them with? As I reflect on it, it probably needs more time than I'm able to give it here. But I think um, as, as you go out and you, and you want to reach these communities um, and, and reach people, really, like, I shouldn't even say communities. As you go, like, it's not about um, saving people. Re- always remember that God saves. Mm. And we just have to be responsive and willing to follow the call that he's put on our hearts. Mm. So if I encourage you with anything, if you feel on your heart that if God has placed on your heart to reach out to anyone, be faithful to that and trust that God is doing his work. Hmm. Yeah. So good. Yeah, I do. I agree. I think sometimes you can, you have no idea if you're making any sort of progress. And I think people like, in, particularly the season of uh, generations we're in right now, we love instant gratification, instant progress, instant, you know, just something that's telling us, but I think it gets tiring and hard and you have no idea if, yeah, sometimes you, if you're even making an impact and um, I would say in those times you, you keep, <laughs> you dig deeper, right? Um, so I was going to share the marathon, not a sprint, uh, kind of analogy of, um, that goes alongside of this. It's relationships take time, they take effort, um, and they can be thrilling at first or, and then get hard and just like a marriage, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, and staying in that can be a huge testimony to that you are there for the person and um, that you are actually invested in who they are and what they're going through. I think another um, kind of, I don't know if this is called an encouragement or just something that I, I, I really like to share this with people is um, to get deeply rooted in either the lives or the context that you're in. So if you have the opportunity to get deeply mm-hmm. rooted in somebody's life, or if you're in more of like a, a larger context, like a new community that you're moving into or something, um, to get us deeply rooted. And when I mean deeply rooted, not just going to like the one church and the one store that you like and the one neighbor, but like get on your feet, walk the neighborhood, use your bike instead of a car all the time. Um, go to the the local corner store instead of driving 15 minutes outside of the community to go to the Whole Foods. Like 
And I think what that begins to develop, one, is you get to know your neighbors mm-hmm. <laughs> and you build relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, that proximity, right, and that relationship then can cultivate other things and God can open doors there. Uh, but really, it lends itself to that felt need concept. So this is in um, uh, a book by John Perkins, but he got it from the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just the idea that when you live with people in the same community that you're trying to serve or that you have a heart for, um, or you go into somebody else's home that, you know, if you're, maybe it's not a community context, but it's a relational one-on-one with a new mom or somebody you're, you're trying to connect with instead of you saying, Oh, come to my church this weekend or come to my kid's birthday that you would step out and allow yourself to be uncomfortable and try a new context. So go to their church, go to their kid's birthday parties, go to, um, and it might be different music and it might be different food and it might be different drinks and it might, you know, have just be a different atmosphere altogether in a different part of town. And guess what? You were asking them to do the exact same thing when mm. you asked them to come to yeah. your, your side. Yeah. And I think God met us where we were at. He came to us, right? He came down to be with us. And I think that same idea of like, when you begin to live life with others and feel the same needs they they feel that when you realize that there's no safe place tonight to go out and like when you ran out of milk, you don't know, you can't run to the corner store because it's not as safe. You begin to understand the same needs and you have the same traumas and you have the same. And so now you understand why people are functioning the way they are, why communities are functioning the way they are. And you can be so much more effective as an advocate and an ally. And, um, when you want to create change, right? You now, because that the things you're wanting to change are now, part, you understand them intimately. Mm. And I think that's exactly what Christ did, right? He came down and uh, he lived life. And we can't say that it's a God that doesn't know the same temptations as us or the same hardships. It's like mm-hmm. he does and he mm-hmm. did. And um, and so, yeah, that's I think that's my encouragement is like anybody going about this, um, get deeply rooted yeah. and get in, in the mm. context, in the relationship Go to others and uh, live life and be in relationship. Yeah, um, a lot of good stuff. I nor- normally normally I don't want to ever answer a question, but I've actually been thinking about this a lot too, and I'm I'm going to answer it alongside you guys a little bit Great. as we kind of wrap up here. Um, and I'll you know this Brian, is the first yeah. on the podcast, Danny. No, but like I was thinking, like <laughs> a lot of brown and black communities a lot of communities in the inner city are so like the people that are very communal with each other i think just as a as a practical application i think i think certain cultural dynamics outside of that one uh, one of them being being very individualistic Mm. we operate in a very individualistic way so therefore living life seems kind of like you just don't do it. Like I got to set my time aside for this and for this and for this. And I don't, I'm not going to take the time to do this and do this. I will try to minister at these times, but I think kind of having to shed a lot of the individualism that we are programmed with a lot of times to say like, Oh no, we're going to go to this. If we're going to live communally in a community, like it's community you have to Mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing, but I think also in that same context, one thing I, I mean, this is just from my experience and people who I've interacted with and got the privilege to know and they are very vulnerable um it might come in different it might come through tears it might come through just we're just gonna sit i'm just gonna pack and i'm not gonna have any sort of facial differences or emotional differences it might just be in the context of like they're talking about it just as commonly as they talk about going to the store but they unpack 
and they're vul- they're vulnerable. And I think that's something we as the church need to also learn is vulnerability and being not so much on the side of I don't show my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not gonna let you see my weaknesses. I'll listen to your weaknesses. But I think part of that trust thing that you talked about earlier, Steph, is that like you got we gotta be weak, we gotta be vulnerable. And I I mean, we were talking about this at church a few weeks ago, but like um like we we turn off our vulnerability because we see it as a sign of weakness, but Paul says, like, I'm going to boast my weaknesses because it shows God's power. So mm-hmm. if you are showing your vulnerability with people who are also showing vulnerabilities, you can show the power of God to work in the midst of all that vulnerability and weaknesses. And so those are just a couple of things I was thinking about mm. practically for anybody. And that's that's across the board. That's obviously in this context that we're talking about. But I think just in general and as believers, it's just things to, like, think through. And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, thanks to you guys for sharing a lot of stuff and again like i want the listeners to understand like everything they shared yeah we weren't talking a ton about like gangs and gang culture people but like these are things that touch down and affect a lot of people caught up in like there is a reason why gangs i think we said this before are way more um populous is that a word (laughs) uh in these more marginalized inner city urban context than other parts of like, especially the suburbs. Now gangs are in the suburbs here in LA, but there's a reason why you see block to block every other street corner in like a urban context. There's so many gangs and all this stuff over here because these issues tie down and affect them. And so as you guys were able to share that today, we also want our listeners to know that yes, this is, these are things that are affecting the gang members. It's not just like, again, like they wake up one day saying, I'm going to go gangbang, you know? So I just thank you guys for unpacking that. When you're, I love that you brought it back to that because I think, right. Some of that was missing from, uh, or we didn't touch on, um, kind of that, that context or that population. But I think gangs are a solution to a lot of these problems, Mm. right? Yes. Why do we have alumni networks in colleges? Because they help you get jobs and get connections and you feel a sense of like pride and connectedness. And, you know, same with like your local sports teams, you know, you're mm-hmm. a Dodgers fan, you wear blue and you have like, I'm sure there's like a certain like chant or a saying or like a jersey and it's exactly what a gang is, right? It is a collective, a collection of people who, when, when the government isn't able to kind of meet your needs, when the church isn't meeting your needs and when pe- other people aren't, we're going to gang together, we're going to. We're gonna pull our resources. We're gonna we're gonna get ours, right? And mm-hmm. we're and and then you become territorial because well, this is ours, and now yeah. now you're fighting for the same resources, right? The access, the yeah. the um the the forward movement. The if you don't have a family because some of your family's locked up and things, well, what are we gonna do? We're gonna be family now. This is a new family, and our family wears red, or your family wears blue, or yeah. And so it's just it's a solution for the the things that are going on, and so yes. it's uh yes yeah. To me, I I don't. I see the very, I understand why, why gangs exist and I understand why the, the lure of them and why people get involved and why some people might wake up one day and say, I am going to go join that gang. Cause I know that I can, they can help me get food. Yeah. They can help me. I won't okay. get te- teased at school for like the shoes I'm wearing. Cause they'll give me a new pair of kicks. Yeah. Like it's just things like that, that it gives you a they'll sense protect of protect like, me. Yeah. They'll protect me. Yeah. Right. Cause I don't have protection in my neighborhood because yeah. maybe there's issues with yeah. law enforcement or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah thanks yeah guys Mm -hmm. i feel like we could have like 
five other episodes that spin that. off of each a lot of things we talked about. So thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, you guys are, are yeah. just a blessing. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. This has been an episode of the Hope for the Hood podcast by Prodigal Sons Incorporated. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to Cornerstone West Los Angeles, where we host this podcast, Adam Bond for editing, and of course, those who regularly give to support the ministry of Prodigal Sons. Thanks for liking and subscribing. We'll catch you next time right here on the Hope for the Hood podcast.